0: Welcome to episode 43 of the Energy Balance Podcast, where we teach you how to live without constant hunger and cravings, fatigue, brain fog, poor sleep, and all sorts of other low energy symptoms by maximizing your cellular energy. I'm Jay Feldman, I'm a health coach and independent health researcher, and joining me again today is my good friend, Mike Fave. Mike and I have been studying health and nutrition together for a long time now, Mike also draws on his experiences from working within the healthcare industry. Today's episode is part two of our autoimmunity series. In part one, if you did not watch or listen to it already, we discussed the alternative views of the immune system and of autoimmunity, and we also talked about the problems with the mainstream and functional medicine views of autoimmune conditions, and also the problems with their proposed solutions to autoimmune conditions. So. If you did not listen to that first episode of the series, I would highly recommend you go back and do that because in today's episode, we'll be talking about the bioenergetic view of autoimmunity. We'll be discussing why restoring cellular energy availability and raising your metabolism is the key to reversing the autoimmune state. We'll be talking about why avoiding carbs and sugar makes autoimmune conditions worse in the long run. We'll also be talking about why low-carb, keto, and carnivore diets are not ideal for autoimmune conditions and typically lead to short-term relief at a long-term cost. We'll also talk about why having enough saturated fats and carbohydrates from the right sources is imperative for autoimmune conditions, and we'll be talking about how you can restore gut health and why this is so important for autoimmunity. If you are new to this podcast, then after listening to this episode, I'd highly recommend you go back and listen to episodes 1 through 7 where we take some time to build a foundation as far as the bioenergetic view of health goes and some of the primary things we'll want to focus on in order to restore that cellular energy availability. To check out the show notes for today's episode, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast where you can take a look at the studies and articles and anything else that we link to from this episode and if you are dealing with any autoimmune conditions or if you're dealing with other low energy symptoms like chronic cravings and hunger, low energy or fatigue, chronic pain, weight gain, any sort of gut symptoms or brain fog, hormonal imbalances, poor sleep or any other low energy symptoms or chronic health conditions, then head over to jfeldmanwellness.com/energy where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course where I will walk you through the main things that you want to do as far as diet and lifestyle are concerned so that you can maximize your cellular energy availability. And I'll also explain why this is the key to resolving these low energy symptoms and conditions. Now, before we dig into part two, I just wanted to give you a bit of a refresher as far as where we left off. Uh, at the end of part one, we had just finished discussing the alternative views of the immune system. And these are the views that suggest that our immune system Uh, does not respond to self versus non-self and is not simply, you know, confusing our own body as a foreign invader, but is instead responding to energy failure and structural damage or danger, and that this is what's being sensed in this autoimmune state. So with that, let's get started.
1: So the reason this context becomes important is because this becomes important from a treatment perspective, especially because it's. Well, you can seal up the gut and you can, you can eliminate all the protein triggers and things like that from antigenic foods. But at the same time, you still have to address the actual state of the body from a bioenergetic point of view and deal with the, any type of chronic or systemic inflammation that may be going on besides the, uh, whatever the trigger was antigenetically, um, from food or bacteria or whatever coming from the gut. So it's, you can't just address the gut you have to address metabolism as well directly and that involves you know if you have a high amount of polyunsaturated fats particularly omega-6s but also omega-3s um addressing that if you if you have uh nutrient deficiencies if you're not eating enough carbohydrate or enough calories and or food in general all those things become important in in um in this system, the other thing to point out here, and this is directly categorized in the stress response system, the activation, the chronic activation of stress systems like cortisol and estrogen and adrenaline and all these things that sort of promote each other over time, they induce an autoimmune profile, whereas chronic use of glucocorticoids and upregulation of estrogen actually helps to increase the, um, what's it, the humoral immune response or the adaptive immune response, and push it towards an autoimmune uh, situation. Yep. Uh, so so the idea of just healing up the gut, and that's it, and, being, and eliminating all antigenic, like a lot of people, and this is why I think the reason we're getting here is that I think a lot of people go down these chronic elimination diets. Um, and I'm not saying that the elimination doesn't help, because it definitely does. But in order to not having to continually eliminate because you continually respond, have a negative response. Yes, you need to. Yes, it's helpful. You don't need to, but I'm not going to tell anyone what to do. But yes, it's helpful to address any type of infection in the gut. That's fine. I'm not arguing with that. It's helpful to seal up the gut barrier. Not arguing with that. But you also need to address the metabolic approach and address nutrient deficiencies and address hormonal imbalances like the hypothyroidism or elevated, chronic, chronically elevated cortisol or estrogen and progesterone imbalances, or hypogonadism in low testosterone and androgens in men, or altered cortisol to DHEA ratios, and these are all addressed through number one lifestyle changes, but also specific dietary changes, including eating enough and getting uh, proper amounts of macronutrients, including carbohydrates. Which and the reason I continually bring up the carbohydrate component is oftentimes in the paleo sphere that's kind of not that's kind of balked at and particularly in carnivore and the ketosphere, the carnivore is like the ultimate elimination diet. I mean, it definitely has its pros. There's definitely, it's not like 100% negative, but there's also is a lot of negatives associated with it because you only have the one food. And what I think a lot of people find is they have their chronic situation, their chronic issue. They go on these extreme elimination diets, whether it's keto, carnivore, autoimmune, paleo. And then they, for a while, they start to realize that they're sort of in a hole as mm-hmm. far as elimination goes. And then I think eventually either they stay stuck in that hole and they continue trying to restrict more, or eventually they start trying to incre- increase more food and then, particularly, carbohydrates. And then that's where you start to see. I mean, at least I saw this trend was people started moving more towards the idea of eating more carbs and then increasing carbs slowly over time with perfect health diet and things like that. And then just, and then choosing your carb sources wisely. You know, you, because the other component with, within all this is there's, there's still the lectins from the different foods and the different uh, toxins are still, you know, there's still going to be an issue. And especially once you have that autoimmune predisposition and you've activated that system, yes, once you get the bioenergetic point of view back, it's still, it's much easier to fall back in the loop once you've already entered that state. Like it becomes yeah. easier to to reactivate it but you know what the predisposition is and where the flare and all that goes so that this point of view this bioenergetic view or the or the morphostasis or danger theory which are all sort of linked together it sort of adds in the idea of context uh, and and state to this idea of the this very general idea of self non-self or just uh, molecular mimicry there's there's a lot of components involved that I think are really important the other thing And this adds those components. The other thing I want to point out here is that in a lot of pathogenic or pathologic processes like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease, there's like you have the direct damage to the brain tissue, but you also find, for example, like lipofuscin, which is oxidized polyunsaturated fatty acids and iron, and you find elevated amounts of aluminum and in, in some of the dementia and alzheimer diseases and then you also find elevated amounts of endotoxin um you also find those in the plaques of heart disease patients you also find you find those in uh the damaged areas of alzheimer's patients brains and things like that and i think this like all of this is adding to the idea of a state response and the immune immune upregulation and response to these damaging toxins and processes at these at these specific sites um, so it, it's important to, you know, there's all, there's a lot of factors going into it and it's addressing all those factors. And then also the, and that includes addressing the state, not just the, the gut or just the, well, the mainstream view doesn't even like, it's just mostly genetics and some random trigger. So it's kind of hard to make any argument for addressing all the factors there, but I think the state is important and, and, uh, and to keep in mind, cause I think like when you see a lot of kids with their responses, they tolerate a lot of things. And I think that maybe that's related. And a lot of us, I think can relate to when we're kids, we're able to eat and do whatever we want. And then sort of at some point in time, things break. And I think what breaks is the metabolic response first. And then you, you, after that, you just become open to these insults Um, and the insults basically start to trigger these different processes. But the first thing is the state. And Mm -hmm. the, the thing is, is, you may have had a singular trigger. You may find a singular trigger like you lived in a moldy house or you got some type of heavy metal poisoning from something you did or, I don't know, you caught some type of infection. That may have been a trigger, but the important piece to keep in mind is that's the straw that broke the camel's back, right? It's the one yeah. it's the one thing that broke the camel's back, but you have to keep in mind the entire pile of straw that came before that that led to the state that allowed for the camel's back to be broken by that singular piece of straw.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I agree. I wanted to type a, a bit of a loose end where we describe this alternative view of immunity and why energy matters and the, how this energy disruption underlies the immune response. But I wanted to just clarify what that means in terms of autoimmunity. So again, in these alternative views, you have some sort of trigger and this molecular mimicry where our immune system has just become confused and accidentally started attacking self it forgot what was non-self Self, it got confused because of this other protein that looked like self and started attacking itself and instead from these base you know building upon these alternative views of immunity our immune system is responding to structural deterioration and energy failure in the tissues that is causing a quote-unquote autoimmune response and then what's happening is the immune system is just clearing out that damaged or um, like structurally degraded part of the tissue so
1: or components that have gotten lodged there so if you had some type of heavy metal toxicity or like endotoxin or something like that like for example when you see the atherosclerotic plaques and you find endotoxin in there and you realize that atherosclerosis isn't just fat being deposited on the wall but an actual immune response that takes place in the center of the arterial wall like when you start looking at those things it's like almost everything is an autoimmune response at this point right but is' it right, really right. auto like is the idea of attacking self really there if you have all these other ox can like oxidize polyunsaturated fatty acids and endotoxin and heavy metals and things like that what's being what's really being attacked
0: yeah yeah and so and so when you have these systemic Large scale issues. Sometimes they can be brought on by a pathogen, some sort of gut issue, some sort of leaky gut that can be an aspect a trigger. Uh, but there are many possible triggers that all lead to some sort of an energy failure, structural failure, and that is that is creating these antibodies to those aspects of the tissue. Basically, I think Jamie Kelliff referred to it as as a mess. So you basically have this particular <laughs> type of mess that is being tagged as as this mess is a problem. We need to clean up this type of mess. And that is what the antibodies are in, in this autoimmune condition. It's not that your immune system is just attacking you, it's that there are these this there's this underlying energy disruption and this damaged tissue that's being cleared out. Our immune system is helping us in this situation. And rather than just wanting to suppress it with medications, which can be helpful in reducing some of these symptoms, some of the inflammation type. Um, side of this, although it's recognized that this is not a long-term solution and the degradation does still happen in the long term, instead of that, the better solution would be to fix the energy problem in the first place. As you said, once you're in this position where you, you've already had the autoimmune attack, you are going to be susceptible to that happening again, but it's only going to happen if the damage happens again. It's only going to happen if the there's that systemic energy failure again uh, or localized energy failure. And so... The solution here, which we'll be getting at, is restoring these energetic systems. And you talked about this as far as some very basic things. You you mentioned diet-wise as far as eating enough, eating enough carbs, all of that, which we'll dig into. But fixing things on that level will prevent that from happening and prevent the need for the autoimmune type, uh, quote-unquote, attack. But it's really just a response, a clearing. And it completely changes this this whole view. It's a much more cohesive view where… Your, I don't know, our physiology, our body makes sense. It's not trying to fight itself, um, but rather it's it's working to help you. Uh, it's it's just not being given the things that it needs. I mean, it's, it's in this kind of this degrading kind of state, and so it's just a matter of, of fixing that underlying um, problem. And you did allude to a couple of uh, factors that are important evidence for this side beyond some of what we already talked about. One that you mentioned was that the stress hormones uh, drive our immune system towards the, the autoimmune side, the antibody producing side, towards the from the TH1, the T helper cell ones to T helper cell twos. And that's really which important.
1: is a mainstream view, by the way. That is not like an alternative view. That is in physiology textbooks that are given to nurses and doctors, that is well known.
0: Yeah, yeah. And as we've talked about many times on this podcast. The stress hormones are produced also in response to an energy failure, and I don't think that's serendipitous or coincidental that that the stress hormones are happening in response to an energy failure, and our immune system happens to respond to an energy failure similarly to clear it out. And you know, in the case of the stress hormones, it's basically this very systemic, cohesive response to correct the underlying issue there. Um, and the problem is when this happens in such a like, such an intense, massive, chronic state that it becomes basically a, you know, a problem. But yeah, so that's that's a pretty important piece of evidence there is that the stress hormones help to contribute to that shift to autoimmunity. You also mentioned the the sex hormones like estrogen contributing, well, not all the sex hormones, but estrogen contributing to the same autoimmunity, basically in the exact same way. We just talked in a previous podcast about how estrogen basically is a stress hormone. And when you look at the other hormones that function on the other side of, of metabolism that are very pro-metabolic, progesterone testosterone pregnenolone and all of their variants those do the opposite they suppress the autoimmune type state and it's not because they're suppressing the immune system it's kind of a bad way to put it but they're suppressing the need for it they're preventing the need for it by preventing the degradation and often leading to the opposite restoring energetic function and restoring structure so that's another kind of important piece of evidence uh a couple others are just that and I mean, I guess I kind of went out of order here, but the first one would just be that any sort of energy dysfunction, when we look at mitochondrial dysfunction, that's one of the primary uh, things that leads to inflammation in the first place, and that leads to what's called a danger response in the first place, and then you have the signaling of the stress hormones. So each aspect of that chain is basically signaling or moving towards a kind of autoimmunity, signaling the immune system. Uh, And there's also, there's actually a quote I want to read just talking about um, energy production, and mitochondrial function, and autoimmunity. Uh, and just and this is, So this is specifically talking about what's called the redox state, which is basically just a barometer of the energetic state. And so this quote uh, states, certain autoimmune diseases may be due to redox alterations rather than to a failure to deplete, suppress, tolerate, or divert self-directed B-cell activity in fact, in the same patient, different autoantibodies could be simultaneously masked and unmasked by redox reaction. So, this is basically saying that the this entire arm of the you know autoimmune or immune system, but this this whole autoimmune situation is determined by the energy state um, rather than some sort of immunosuppression versus non-immunosuppression. And yeah. interestingly too mitochondrial dysfunction and energy failure happens in the actual t-cells in autoimmune conditions so not only is it happening in the tissues but in these autoimmune conditions you also see it in the actual t uh the t-cells because
1: it's a systemic problem it's not just that one it's not just the one it's not like your thyroid just and i think this is really important for people to know when you have hashimoto's it's not just your thyroid (laughs) when you have ankylosing spondylitis it's not just your spine all of the autoimmune diseases are are risk factors for other autoimmune diseases and heart disease and everything else. So it's it's a while one thing is singled out and it adds to create this nicely categorized system, in reality, it is all a systemic response. Like they and they all have predispositions for each other and other diseases along the same lines because it's a systemic energy issue and a systemic inflammation issue. It's not just one thing.
0: Yeah. And that was actually the next thing I was going to mention, which is that. None of these autoimmune conditions are just affecting that one system. They're all associated with often other autoimmune symptoms or conditions and various other degenerative conditions. And you had mentioned uh, cardiovascular disease and its association with various. With almost every single autoimmune disease. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, virtually all of them are associated with each other too. So, you know, and, and another huge piece of this too is I mean it's acknowledged. That's like there's so much research showing that mitochondrial function or dysfunction is tied with virtually every single autoimmune condition. And there's also, and we'll talk about this as far as what we might actually want to do if we are in this state, like what we would want to work on as far as diet goes and supplements. But there are a ton of pro-metabolic supplements that are all shown to improve the these various autoimmune conditions, like all, all the different B vitamins antibiotics which you mentioned uh you know specifically the tetracyclines which help to clear out pathogens which are a huge part of this but also have other beneficial effects on the energetic level you also have supplements like caffeine and the various steroid hormones pregnenolone and progesterone um t3 which which is the active thyroid hormone Uh, methylene blue aspirin inosine, various other supplements which we'll touch on in you know a bit later but they're all shown to have improvements in these autoimmune conditions so and again from the conventional view the only way i think that they could argue that that's happening is that all of those things happen to be immunosuppressive in some way uh, which i would argue is pretty far from the case if anything it'd be the opposite but uh yeah do you do you have anything else that you want to add as far as kind of this bioenergetic view of auto, you know, autoimmune conditions and this alternative view of the immune system.
1: Oh, I just think it's important to, I think it's important to not try to reduce different diseases in different situations, but obviously besides like, like if you have a specific infection, right. You know, like if you have a a strep infection in your tonsils or something like that, you get strep throat. There's obvious, there's a, there's a component to there into that as well as to what allowed you to get sick. But I think most chronic diseases are very much systemic issues and manifest as predispositions. And it's not, you can't just treat that one area in this reductionistic sense of, I have Hashimoto's, so I take my thyroid and then I'm complete, I take my thyroid hormone and I'm completely fine. It's like, no, that indicates that there's something systemically wrong and mm-hmm. it's just manifesting through the thyroid, but it, there's something overall going, going wrong. And it's important to find I mean all these things that we discuss are theories. So but it's important to find the
0: so is the conventional view too, though, just to
1: no, but I'm saying all the all the, the all the points that we discussed, all the all the different theories we discussed are just that theories. And it's important not to just attach to one theory or like one specific theory overall, but to sort of find what actually makes sense and for example, like in the idea of the molecular mimicry theory, like there's components there that make sense. You can't just throw out the theory altogether, but there needs to be more nuance to that. And that's where you start to develop something like the morphostasis or bioenergetic point of view. I think it's important to look for all the unifying components and try to really understand what's going on on a systemic. I get I hate to say holistic because it's such a buzzword, but like. A, systemic, like holistic level, looking at it from all multiple points of view and understanding the different components involved in the situation while keeping in mind very basic principles like, for example, the importance of energy um, and the importance of like general structural function of the gut and different things like that and and function of the immune system. I, I think going into extremely reductionistic pathways without keeping the large picture in mind is very dangerous for trying to understand different disease processes and just, I think it just leads us down pathways that don't go anywhere. And it just, and, and I understand why it's done because you know, you're going to need to know specific reductionistic pathways to sort of create a singular patented drug that you can, you know, <laughs> that you can make a lot of money off of essentially. But I, most of these diseases aren't silver bullet cures. And that's why a lot of the drugs come with all these terrible side effects. And, and, don't really work long term because you like you don't just break one link in the chain and solve the problem like it's a systemic issue you don't just get rid of the bacteria and the gut entirely and solve the problem like there's other things going on that led to the issue in the first place and the reaction to the bacteria and i mean i think it's kind of hard to just blame it on genetics i mean if you want to just take it oh it's just genetics then you know that's fine that's your decision but i think that it's kind of hard and i don't see such a large amount of evidence saying, oh, it's just a genetic predisposition that just developed over time. You know, so I think it's important just to keep the whole big picture in mind and try to find the unifying elements and what actually makes sense from all these theories to construct, you know, an a overarching theory to describe it using general principles that also incorporates the mechanistic and reductionistic areas into one picture overall.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, I would say there's certain aspects of these different theories that are mutually exclusive, but you still want to be able to account for the results that are seen, for example. So even yeah. if the molecular mimicry idea doesn't make sense, because that's dependent on a self versus non, you know, from my view at least, doesn't make sense because it's dependent on the self versus non-self idea. Uh, there is definitely value in recognizing how much from the alternative view that that they're using the molecular mimicry to support this how much things like intestinal permeability or leaky gut and gut pathogens uh, are affecting systemic health and affecting our immune system and uh, could be playing a role in autoimmune conditions so definitely want to be able to uh, you know include that evidence but um also recognize that I, i think that the those theories are at least somewhat mutually exclusive or entirely the molecular molecular mimicry and then the danger theory and um morphostasis
1: yeah yeah i just i think it's important to take what works and throw out what doesn't that's i guess the best way to say it and to just try and find you know if if someone's getting this beneficial effect in some way from this particular circumstance to not throw it out but to try and understand how it fits into some sort of singular model that explains all this the contradictions
0: yeah absolutely yeah i agree So considering this bioenergetic view of autoimmunity and the views of the immune system that is being built on and this idea that what's really underlying these autoimmune conditions is an energy failure or damage, you know, a decrease in structure that's leading to these immune reactions and and eventually the quote unquote autoimmune state where we're seeing these antibodies to uh, to this damage and to the the energy failure or the tissues that are showing that or the area that's showing that. but anyway, so continue, or considering this view of autoimmunity, let's discuss how this changes what we actually want to do as far as uh, lifestyle and diet and supplements and everything that can actually lead to some improvements in these conditions. And also, let's discuss how this differs from some of the uh, more common approaches dietarily and lifestyle-wise for these autoimmune conditions. So we talked about in in the kind of functional medicine side, the functional medicine approach, where it all centers around leaky gut being the primary problem that leads to the autoimmunity in the first place. And considering that, that's really the main goal is to fix the gut, heal the leaky gut, and at the same time, avoiding any triggers that could lead to the, uh, the immune response and lead to the kind of autoimmune situation via molecular mimicry and so because of that the general approach is some sort of elimination diet the autoimmune paleo diet is extremely popular as basically one of the main uh, elimination diets for these autoimmune conditions where basically you are avoiding any possible trigger foods and as we said earlier those main ones tend to center around grains and eggs and dairy and of course, Why don't we throw sugar in there? Because sugar is just, you know, all around bad in the first place. So of course it's going to cause autoimmunity, uh, which we've done a couple episodes discussing why that is not the case, and and I have some articles on that too. So I'll link to all those. But so you know, this extremely common approach that virtually anybody who is actually doing something lifestyle wise to resolve or try to improve auto, you know, their autoimmune condition, it generally centers around that sort of approach where you're avoiding triggers and then you're trying to heal your gut with. Various probiotics or various supplements. And as we said, there's some merit there where, of course, the gut plays a huge role. Intestinal permeability is a legitimate concern. Uh, Dysbiosis in the intestine is a legitimate concern, even if these aren't necessarily the preconditions to autoimmune conditions. Uh, And, you know, they, of course, can be in certain instances and they can be a major contributor to a degradation in structure or damage and a depletion of energy, leading to, you know, the activation of the immune system and the autoimmune type response. So yeah, I mean do you do you want to maybe discuss or start by discussing some of the issues with that approach and then we'll go from there.
1: I mean, I think that overall the autoimmune paleo diet with the exception of the avoidance of sugar is probably helpful for a lot of people and I think focusing on addressing the gut it will be helpful for a lot of people as well. But I don't think that you just eliminate all your triggers and then, or I haven't seen things where people just eliminate all their triggers and then they stay off them for a while and they continue to stay on the diet and then things turn around and then that's it. I haven't really seen much of that. I have seen people eliminate their triggers and go on the autoimmune paleo diet and um, address gut health and, and anything along those lines and then basically get a a complete remission of sorts uh, from their autoimmune disease without having to go on to these very harsh drugs. I think that that's helpful. I think that that's better than going on strong immunosuppressant or immunomodulating drugs with a whole host of negative side effects and continuing to just eat and do whatever you want to yourself despite the obvious warning signs of actual systemic issues going on. Um, But at the same time, I still think that while you addressing the gut is definitely a component, I don't think it's the only component. I also don't think that going zero carb is necessarily a great idea for a lot of people. Um, even if somebody has to go low carb for a little while, just because of some type of gut issue, like some type of small intestine bacterial overgrowth type of, type of thing, and they need a, like a couple weeks or so to clear that out, going on maybe lower carb might be a little helpful for a while. But ideally, I think that carbs are important. So I think keeping them in the diet and then and that's a part of addressing the systemic issue is and looking at what's going on hormonally, what's going on with your thyroid, what's going on uh, with your body temperature and metabolism in general is an important part of addressing the key picture of of addressing the entire picture and including addressing gut health because the gut, the question is what led to the compromised gut ho- gut health in the beginning? What led to the sort of series of events that happened? Was it just the gut health went bad? Was there something that impaired metabolism and then the gut health went bad? So I think you have there are multiple areas need to be addressed. Um, so, and I think that the metabolism standpoint is helpful and important for maintaining the gut health. When once you resolve your gut health issues, maintaining that and keeping that going forward without, when, without that, without this, um, without like addressing everything altogether, then what I've seen happen with people is they just continue eliminating things. It's like, mm-hmm. well, I used to be able to eat this, eat this, and now I can't. And now I have to eliminate it. And then that's when I think people start going, oh, carnivore. And all I can eat is steak. And for a lot of people, and I th- the, the thing that I want to point out here specifically is if we're going to touch on this topic is, with carnivore, a lot of people do really well just eating steaks, and I think that that's a testament to how well a lot of people's bodies digest meat and protein in general, and how a lot of protein sources from animal food specifically tend not to cause issues for people um, digestive-wise. It's a lot of people do pretty well with with protein and with uh, with the saturated, monounsaturated fatty acid sources. home. Um, the other thing I want to point out here is a lot of people also use fruitarian or vegan diets to help with their autoimmune diseases, and they do get remission. Um, and I think that it's important to realize that a lot of people do do well with fruits, and a lot of people do well with specific cooked vegetables, and some of the vegetables, some of them they do fine with the vegetables raw. I haven't really seen many people go on grain-based uh, high nuts and seed vegan diets and do very well with autoimmune conditions um that's just my experience but i have i have seen a lot of anecdotal evidence for the fruitarian groups or or at least some some of the vegan groups and then also the carnivore groups in dealing with um dealing with some of the autoimmune issues and there's a lot of uh there's a lot of like vegan youtubers who literally who went vegan when they started or vegetarian or whatnot and um eliminated some of their autoimmune conditions and like have posted stories about it. And I think that with that said too, some of the anecdotal evidence is important to keep in mind and to look at and say, you know, cause we, we fall into this camp. It's like, well, I'm carnivore. Well, the vegan couldn't, the vegan stuff couldn't ever work. Or I'm vegan and that carnivore stuff couldn't ever work. But when you have people going on carnivore, going on vegan and finding beneficial results for whatever their ailment is or their situation is, you have to look at that and, or, I like to look at that and basically see, okay, um, well, what's what's the unifying principle here? What what's the underlying aspect? And both diets have their benefits. They also have their drawbacks. I mean, a lot of people with carnivore wind up becoming hypogonadal, at least based on labs, and hypothyroid. And a lot of people with veganism are freezing cold and have vitamin deficiencies and protein deficiency. That tends to play out, take longer to manifest, and people can still have gut issues with with some of those as well. Um, so I think it's important to, number one, see the benefits in those. Number two, keep them an open mind and try and, and we talked about this earlier, keep um, like look for what's working and not just discount it because it doesn't agree with the I- ideology. And then also when you're to back to the primary point, when you're addressing the whole autoimmune situation in general, the gut is a very important component. N- neither of us are denying that. Neither of us are denying the importance of, um, that elimination diets can play in avoiding lectins, which is the idea behind the autoimmune paleo diet to a large extent, lectins and irritating foods and, uh, hard to digest foods to a large extent, um, and getting, get rid of the, basically getting rid of the irritants for a while. But we're also, we're also saying that focusing on metabolism is, is of primary importance, getting the system back to oxidizing sugar appropriately, producing carbon dioxide, um, and taking in oxygen, making sure the hormones are functioning in the correct way. You know, you, you don't want to, if you go on a heavy fish oil, low carb, like very low carb diet, you have, yes, you may eliminate a decent amount of inflammation. Um, but at, but at what cost, what do you, what is the method that you're doing that? Are you strongly elevating cortisol because you're low carb? Are you, uh, eliminating most fermentable fibers in your diet so if you had a gut infection now it's not fermenting and then you you're lowering the endotoxin or the toxic exposure and then you have some of the i get i guess depending on what camp you're in the immunosuppressive effect of the fish oil um that's again that's not the strategy that we want we want to basically get the metabolism working appropriately and part of that is the elimination diet so i guess overall it is just addressing the picture entirely and trying to do more than just and with the newer theories, trying to see it as more than just, oh, it just, it's only a gut issue. It's like, no, it's, it's a systemic issue. There's a systemic issue going on metabolically for some type of autoimmune disease to manifest. There's some inflammatory issue going on. The gut may be a very strong promoter, but w- why is this happening now? What's the overall picture?
0: Right, right. It's a systemic energy issue. Oftentimes, gut dysfunction is involved there for two reasons. One, because... Gut dysfunction leads to issues that like leads to issues with metabolism, with energy production, with excessive stress. Uh, at the same time, energy failure leads to issues with gut health. So we've talked about that relationship in a couple of previous episodes, and I'll link to it. But considering that, I mean, you know, you're gonna have issues with any part of the body uh, when you're in this systemic energy failure. Uh, and it's not, you know, necessarily such an extreme state. It can just be something that builds over time. But your liver health is not going to be optimal. Your genital health is not going to be optimal. Your brain function is not going to be optimal. On from there, so if, you know, the gut is a pretty major interface, and we do want to make sure that things are functioning properly. Making sure that we're doing the things that support proper gut health. Again, which we've talked about previously, and we'll touch on today. But these are also the same things that are going to help us everywhere else on that systemic energy level. So um you know that's that's the whole point of the bioenergetic view. So yeah it's important to note those things. And I, I want to clarify also that you know you mentioned not discounting what works and that there can be benefits on veganism benefits from from carnivore benefits from the autoimmune paleo. And what we're doing here is trying to and you you mentioned also there are these drawbacks to these things or these benefits. So what you know to kind of string that together it's it's trying to sort out what is working in these situations and why and why and then creating something that does not have those same drawbacks and, and this is kind of you know we're kind of working backwards here as, a, as it's kind of like bottom up as opposed to top down which it's good to have both I mean it's good to see the evidence and make sure that when you're working up it meets those higher level views from the other direction so higher level down would be kind of bioenergetic view down and then evidence up meaning all right carnivorism works to an extent and people with autoimmune conditions. Why is that? Oh, well, it's because we're taking out all these irritating foods. Autoimmune paleo does the same thing. And uh, you know, there's other aspects too that we've talked about before. And then why does veganism? You can
1: you can link to those as well.
0: Yeah. 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 We've talked, we we did an episode pretty much specifically on um carnivore diets and transitioning out of them and why they can be beneficial. But the point being is that all of that is is accounted for and in this Bioenergetic view where we think that it does make sense to avoid irritating foods like you would in autoimmune paleo, as far as alcohol and nuts and seeds and grains. However, that doesn't mean that all of the foods that are removed in autoimmune paleo approaches are always irritating or need to always be removed. Dairy is a good example there where it definitely can be, but there are reasons for that that actually have to do with our metabolic function. Where, for one, as far as the lactose goes, the Uh, ability to produce lactase depends on our gut health first well not necessarily first but it depends on our gut health it also depends on our metabolism so and the same goes for various other um, being able to break down various other components from our foods you know the enzymes that are produced are all related to metabolism so it's another way of saying that when our metabolism is functioning well when we're producing a lot of energy we can digest foods a lot more and or a lot better and they're much less likely to cause issues dairy falls into that category so while somebody who might not be digesting dairy well would benefit from taking it out, in the meantime, big picture, the goal would be to be able to bring that back in without an issue. And I've definitely seen that happen without yep, an issue.
1: We both have,
0: yeah, in people with autoimmune conditions particularly, too, which is noteworthy. you know
1: the thing is some people you do put it back in and it doesn't work for them as well. It does some a lot of that is context dependent. Mm-hmm. And I've seen studies where they looked at um I think it was trypsin effectiveness in patients with autoimmune diseases this was specifically rheumatoid arthritis and then also looking at stomach acid and people with rheumatoid arthritis tended to have small small bacterial intestinal overgrowth uh small intestine bacterial overgrowth <laughs> i mixed that one up um and basically they had low uh trips activity in their small intestine or basically ability to digest proteins well mm-hmm. um so when you start looking at studies like that and you start seeing things like that it's it's those are areas to definitely address and with low stomach acid as well those are areas to definitely address and when you're having high breath high breath tests for methane or hydrogen or all these different types of gases that show a function of um, bacterial overgrowth or bacterial fermentation in the small intestine those are all definitely things to address part of the picture it's going to be hard to eat enough food and get enough calories in if everything you're eating is fermenting. it's going to be uncomfortable too So it's definitely, those are all, we're not disagreeing with any of that. Um, but we also, we want to get to a point where you have the elimination diet and you're actually able to build up from there where you, you can start with elimination and, you know, some of that, some of the elimination can be very individual. You know, some people can start off and they tolerate dairy fine. Some of their foods that they start off with could be dairy and, and fruit and and things along those lines. Other people, they'll start off with, with carnivore, lower carb, and then they can work up. The different foods add them in see how they feel and and build up slowly over time because the other thing is to take once you dig yourself into the hole it's not like you dug it into the hole in one day you dug yourself into a hole over over time so it takes time mm-hmm. to get back um and then from there you add food slowly you can try and play with different macro ratios um and see what works for this your individual context um while repairing the gut eliminating latent infections as much as possible and dealing with uh the energetic state of the body any type of nutrient deficiencies it's it's the whole system has to be when you break the system into when you, where you have either heart disease or autoimmune diseases or cancer or anything these like number one they are systemic issues i think that's important to point out when you have just the inflammation in your gut it's not as far as the ulcerative colitis you don't just have a colon issue you have a systemic health problem um it, it's, not, it's not just one thing. Um, I and mean, what we talked about in other epi- in the previous episode was that all, all, almost all autoimmune conditions are associated with a ton of other inflammatory chronic disease conditions, heart disease, kidney disease, diabetes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you have to, we have to address it as a whole. And you, you need to address all the different elements. They can't just be, oh, I solved my gut and I eliminated the triggers and I'm going to be okay. And depending, the other thing to keep in mind though is depending on how severe someone's autoimmune condition has gone, and how far it has progressed, some degree of discipline and strictness in elimination diet may be required going forward for an extended period of time, especially around certain foods. For some people, it won't. So there's there's a context to how far some people will progress in reversing the damage and what they're going to be able to tolerate, Um, and then also. At, at, at least in my experience too when you have an issue and then you first start to get over the hump for the issue any type of small regression will be felt more strongly mm-hmm. so if you eat something that triggers you before now when you do it when you do it in the first i guess a couple months or maybe a year or so when you're when you're recovering when you regress back you like you really feel it but as you progress more i guess the body becomes stronger and becomes more resistant and things that would have taken you down before like i think what was it jordan peterson was talking about his carnivore diet and how he t- ate apple cider vinegar one time and it completely like crashed him when you start to get stronger coming from that place the apple cider you're not going to feel anything It's like okay apple cider vinegar and so that's something that it takes time to build up that that strength and for some people it might take longer than others and so for some people the progression may may differ for depending on how far the severity of the disease is
0: well and that's that's the biggest problem I would see with the elimination type diet, the super low carb yeah. diet is that instead of building that resilience, you're doing the opposite you're basically building on the stress and creating further energy failure and structural deterioration and as you said earlier, you have to keep avoiding more and more foods you become intolerant to more and more foods you uh you know and that the same thing with that Jordan Peterson example so while there is quote there's value to a quote unquote elimination type diet. I, I would really look at it as just avoiding the foods that are very clearly triggering a response like a negative response or a flare or something. other than that I wouldn't really I would focus much more on making sure you're getting enough carbs, making sure you're getting enough of the more saturated fats, getting enough protein, all the nutrients. I mean I would only really try to avoid the ones that I mean it's worth testing different foods I, in general, I would say, avoiding nuts and seeds and grains is going to be helpful uh you know probably avoiding alcohol in your in the situation is is going to be helpful
1: and pufa of course
0: right and yeah and we'll dig into why that specifically matters you know especially in an autoimmune condition i mean really in any condition it's gonna be pretty important um but you know when it comes to something like dairy and eggs it's worth testing i mean if you really aren't digesting it well and you don't take it out it it might cause some you know might be problematic but In general you know that's it's kind of just uh it's definitely not solving anything just avoiding those things so yeah
1: that's not a cure i think it's important to point out that you're eliminating a trigger doesn't necessarily make it a cure not at all yeah yeah it could it could because the question is is are and this kind of gets a little bit into semantics because people will say well if you add the foods back in and then you relapse and you didn't then it's not a cure. The only way you'd be sure. cured is if you, but for some things like, for example, if you took Pufa out, there's a doctor in Germany, I forget what his name is, but he was, or there's a doctor in, in so I'll, the one in Germany, he removed linoleic acid from MS patients diets and their diseases stopped progressing. And, and some of the people's uh, diseases actually regressed. Um, But when you add linoleic acid back in, it will make the disease basically progress again. That is, that's, not an elimination diet that is basic physiology
0: well it's it's yeah it's different from just removing a trigger but instead it's doing the basic things to support again the the kind of energetic level metabolism
1: yeah well and then on the flip side you have the doctor in england doctor i think is alan airbringer who was doing the low or zero starch diets for people with ankylosing spondylitis and basically getting full remission with them or almost full remission Mm -hmm. that is not necessarily a cure either because the idea behind it was that the starch was feeding the klebsiella bacteria in the intestine and when the when the bacteria in the intestine started to overgrow there was an immune response to that bacteria the idea is not to then to get to a point where eating pounds of starch every day but the it's to get the body to be able to number one help clear the Klebsiella pneumoniae from the intestine or Klebsiella period. I think there's different species that are associated with the disease, not just the pneumonia. I think there's Oxytoca and uh, other ones. But I would be able to clear out a lot of the Klebsiella, get your body to manage the infection better, be able to eat some starch here and there if you have to without, you know, going into full-blown uh, inflammation along the spine and and symptoms along those lines that that would be the goal and and while avoiding starch is going to be important I just don't that's not the only cure for the situation it just it won't make the disease get worse but if you still have klebsiella in the intestine and you're mounting the immune response to it consistently then anytime you eat starch you're going back I mean I'm not telling people to then go eat starch but what I'm saying is we need to, again, address the klebsiella in the intestine and then address the body's ability to to manage the klebsiella in the the intestine as well. And then to manage the immune response as well so that it's not out of control to to the klebsiella.
0: Yeah, I think the biggest kind of, to to try to clarify it semantically, a trigger is, is something that depends on somebody's state where a certain food might be triggering at one time but not another, as opposed to something that is, holistically or systema- systemically problematic something like uh, linoleic acid you know the polyunsaturated fats and the anti-nutrients and nuts and seeds those are things that yes they could be triggering it sometimes or another at one time or another but even if they're not triggering they're going to be a problem long term uh, so i think that's kind of the difference is we're not focusing on just removing those things that might cause an issue at one point and not another and just removing them forever but instead focusing on the things that will systemically lead to improved metabolism and fixing, fixing things on that level. Uh, along with that too, you had mentioned like this idea of building resilience and that that should be happening as opposed to kind of the other way around. And again, there's some, there's, there's some semantic kind of issues here, or, you know, sometimes when we're experiencing something that feels good, we can then tell when we're knocked down from it. So sometimes there can be an improved sensitivity to an extent, but as you're saying, what we're looking for is things that will lead to a situation where you can handle greater amounts of stress without something like a flare-up in in the case of an autoimmune condition, and that is something that should that we want to be working towards. And that I've seen, and, and you know, you mentioned the low starch diet for AS, for example, for ankylosing spondylitis, and i as you said, that makes sense if you've got this infection in, in the gut that's causing these these problems uh but it's not necessary if you resolve those other issues i mean it can be helpful short term but then if you resolve these other issues you should be able to have some starch without a problem and so oh. and, and so you know I've seen that in, in people with as so
1: and to varying degrees i think it's important to put to varying to, to varying degrees at the baseline we don't want progression of the disease we don't want the as or rheumatoid arthritis to progress to replace joints and serious surgeries
0: right yeah
1: that's the that's the bottom that's the bottom line that mm-hmm. or that's like the lowest point that we that we would shoot for we don't want this to progress we don't want it to get worse but that's the minimum we would want it to get to a point where we're regressing and you don't have these triggers hitting the spot as well the real point would be to regress and avoid um and avoid it like not necessarily void, but be able to handle the stress or the triggers better or even eliminate them as actual triggers. Not in the sense that we're eliminating the food, but that we're eliminating the fact that the food is triggering causing the, is, is triggering the, the effect.
0: Right. But the, the problem with just looking at anything that brings like a short-term remission is still being a step in the right direction is you can do that with immunosuppressive drugs. You can do that with immunosuppressive supplements like omega-3s. You can do that with immunosuppressive diets like low-carb diets that also happen to remove triggers that yep. all of those things I would say are going to make it worse in the long run. So I, I think I'm a little hesitant to say that anything that leads to that short term remission is necessarily going to be good in the big picture, beneficial in the big picture.
1: So I guess you want to make the stipulation of context and how, how, it, how are you going about it and why it's working? Yeah. Yeah. But I just wanna I'd like to put it in left in steps because it's sure, like the sure. first goal is to stop it altogether and then basically ladder up yeah. from there and, move towards becoming more resilient over time and then not having the problem overall or or having like very small very very small minor relapses if you like you go on the holiday and you you know you binge drink alcohol and eat street food for a week straight it's like well now i got
0: symptoms again <laughs> right right yeah i didn't under, i I understand what you're saying now i was talking about building resilience and you were saying yes that is the long-term goal but that's not the first step i agree for
1: yeah sure. i'm saying i was trying to give a like a idea or a ladder of uh how we're going to go about the resilience process. Like what, like the whole, the goal overall is to, to build the resilience, but I want to stop everything. Yeah. The inflammation with, with everything to start. And even if, but it obviously depends on how you're going to do it. How are you going to go about it?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, it is, it is, it is not just all of a sudden, you know, now you're going to have that resilience. It does take time step by step. And yes, first step is get out of that immediate acute inflammatory state that you're in. And, and um, that is what, yeah, what we would want to be seeing first. Let's do this. Let's contrast some of the approaches from these these views to what we would actually be doing. They're like what we would actually view as ideal from the bioenergetic perspective. So to, let, let's start with the gut from from this perspective that intestinal permeability is is the major issue. And we just want to do everything that relieves the gut. Of course, there's a lot that we agree with there where intestinal permeability is still a legitimate issue, even if it's not a required precursor for an autoimmune condition. So we still see value in doing things that would help to prevent intestinal permeability or, or you know, lead to some relief there or improvements there. However, I would caution against something like probiotics, which are um, recommended pretty often. Not that, I'm, you know, just, there's just a lot of nuance there and And, uh, you know, we're not saying
1: not to use them. You're just cautioning. I think that's the specific that it's important to recognize that you are saying I caution.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of really particular things to to get into there. So I'll refer to a previous episode that we did discussing probiotics where just a lot of it can depend on particular strains. A lot of it is is relatively unknown in the research. And there's a lot that's being done there that can make things worse. And I've definitely seen that, too, where probiotics can make these issues worse so that's one thing to consider you know as we said we agree with the idea of removing things that are going to be intestinally irritating removing things that are high in anti-nutrients grains nuts and seeds in particular and you know one thing that's that we've talked about and that we would focus on a little bit more is the supportive side to the gut where having uh having enough of the saturated fats actually does a lot to heal the gut We've talked about how that stimulates bile production and that that's antimicrobial in the small intestine and supports gut motility. Uh, We've also, you know, and and of course, the saturated fats themselves are antimicrobial, uh, which is helpful for keeping things clear down there. Uh, Additionally, having enough carbohydrates and we talk a lot about fruit being a really great source of those. That's not only because the carbohydrates are easily digestible, but also the fruits have polyphenols and bioflavonoids in them that are antimicrobial. So you've got this, uh, on one hand, easily digestible carbohydrates that are much less likely to be consumed by gut microbes, although you do have some fibers in there, but you have these other compounds that are antimicrobial or selectively antimicrobial to make sure that we are not feeding the harmful or pathogenic uh, microbes that are in the intestines. So that makes fruits a, a really great source of carbohydrates that can support gut health and some roots and tubers, I mean, roots and tubers in general would fall in that category too. Again, some of that can depend on our ability to digest starch and um, that can vary individually, but a lot of the same things apply with, with roots and tubers. Um, do you want to add on to dietary things that just kind of the basics that would help to support the gut, keep inflammation down and help to reverse intestinal permeability?
1: Uh, I just want to say that I think the, the plant compounds also have a, a protective effect on the intestinal lining besides being antimicrobial mm-hmm. or bacteriostatic or microbial static or anything like that. I think that they, uh, they have some of them or a lot of them can have beneficial effects for the gut in and of themselves besides that, but also on the bacterial aspect. Um, and then I think fibers from fruits and vegetables specifically Uh, Hmm. at least ones that you can tolerate, you know, some, for example, for some people, raisins might completely destroy them or dried apricots or something, but they do fine with bananas or they do fine with like an apple or, or berries or things like that. Uh, that's because of some of the fermentable fibers can cause issues for certain people, depending on what their gut bacteria is. But I think that the, the fibers in general from fruits and specific vegetables can be pretty helpful, uh, especially ones that you tolerate for. Dealing with gut issues, uh, a lot more helpful than refined foods in general. Uh, refined in the sense of like pure granulated sugar, pure oils, on uh, un- our bleached, bromated flours, or a lot of packaged foods. Essentially, I think that they can make gut dysbiosis or induce gut dysbiosis and make them worse if you already have them. So I think the the fruits and vegetables are very helpful from that perspective. I think uh, are particularly for the colon. I like to at least categorize that categorize things into you, you have the small intestine and then the colon uh i think the fats are helpful in the small intestine as you mentioned the saturated fats and the bile acids which the saturated fats stimulate uh are helpful with the small intestine fruits and vegetables for the colon um i think eating adequate protein is very important from that is digestible and comes with minimal amounts of uh minimal amounts of anti-nutrients or or foods that would inhibit digestive enzymes or digestive function or irritate the intestine so i'm not a fan of eating lots of beans and grains for protein or soy or any of. and i think that these manufactured faux animal protein products are or like the impossible burger or anything along those lines are just complete garbage to avoid um and usually i very (laughs) skept i try to be very um I guess middle of the road about how I per per discuss things in a sense you know it's not that you use such strong words but I really think that those the faux products are not worth it <laughs> even that I don't think they make any any sense at all I think a lot of them are actually just it's just straight toxic like I the ingredients and the components of them are not helpful um if you wanted I I'm not a fan of the grains or beans thing but if you wanted to do the vegetarian or vegan deal and you wanted to do the grains or beans component, then I would just stick with the actual grains and beans prepared the proper way instead of these lab-made synthetic products combining all these different gums and soy protein isolate and soy and whatever whatever else they're going to do.
0: Gluten protein.
1: <laughs> yeah, gluten protein. I think those are all a pretty bad idea.
0: Especially if, you, if you've got an autoimmune condition. I mean, normally yeah. those vegetarian proteins and vegans proteins, they do actually use some of the most inflammatory proteins that exist things like gluten as, as the primary protein source so yeah,
1: vital wheat gluten as a primary ingredient so yeah, i yeah. is a bad i think it's a bad idea overall and the reason i i bring that up specifically is because i've seen some people that i've worked with where their doctor has recommended those as good alternative options to eating chicken or steak or fish or anything like that and it just it blows my mind that's even a consideration, especially when you start reading the ingredients on some of these things. It's like, if you, when you go in the hospital too, it's like tube feeding is vital wheat gluten and soybean oil and maltodextrin. It's like, it's not food. <laughs> <Just> that's, that's <laughs> like literally what they feed. That's like a rat diet that they feed them in studies. like, that's literally what they feed rats and studies. And I just don't think it's a good, a good mix. I would stick, even if you're going to do that with that, with the whole grains of beans prepared properly whatever. But I, overall, I think the animal proteins are the better sources. They're more digestible. They come with a lot more nutrients that are digestible as well and a lot less toxins in a lot of cases. So I think that's important. And then obviously, I think besides focusing on the foods that I just mentioned, avoiding a lot of problematic foods like a lot of polyunsaturated fatty acids is important. And I always like to make the stipulation that I think seafood is, is helpful. I'm not necessarily a fan of eating a ton of Heavily fatty cold water fish. I mean, if you're gonna have sardines or salmon once in a while, I don't think it's a, a terrible deal. But I don't think going out of out of your way to eat large amounts of uh, fatty fish, like on a regular basis, on a daily basis, or or whatever, is, is a good idea overall. Um, and that's that's even from the perspective of the research I've seen, where you basically see that okay, you can maybe there's some benefit to some degree of fish oil but in a lot of studies, high amounts of fish oil, like very high amounts of fish oil have not shown to be very helpful. Um, so if you want to be on the fish oil bandwagon that we currently have going on and you agree with, with the idea that the fish oil is helpful from the perspective of eliminating, uh, competing with omega-6 uh, inflammatory mediators, prostaglandins, whatever, that's fine. But I still don't think even, even from the research I've seen in high amounts doesn't seem to be helpful. So like, five, 10 grams, three grams of EPA, DHEA, uh, DHA a day type of stuff doesn't seem to be like a good idea. But I, I leave it there because I, there's so much discrepancy. I know that you're not a fan of it at all. Um, but I do think besides that, the reason I, and I guess we're tangential now, but the reason I think that it's important to stipulate there is because you're going to meet the requirement just by eating seafood. By, and because the seafood itself has beneficial uh, minerals and vitamins that are kind of hard to get from some of the land foods, and the protein from seafood is is pretty quality as well. So even if you're eating oysters on a weekly basis, having some mussels, clams, eating squid or cod or sole or flounder, or having some light tuna, you're still going to get some of those omega threes. But obviously, my focus on those the seafood isn't necessarily the omega three. It's the nutrition that comes with it, and the importance of the nutrition that comes with the seafood, particularly the shellfish.
0: Yeah, yeah, a ton of uh, vitamins and minerals, especially minerals, uh, yeah. in the in those seafood. J- just to clarify, too, I mean, we'll we'll discuss the polyunsaturated fats and omega, you know, specifically the omega threes and, and also the omega sixes that we already touched on a bit in in a, in a little while because there's some uniqueness to them, especially in, in regards regard to the immune system and autoimmunity, and I think it's even more of a reason not to. To have them uh but as you said they are not entirely unavoidable if you're eating good quality animal products um you're going and good quality seafood even if it's low-fat seafood you will be getting small amounts of omega-3s which i think is fine um it is it's kind of comes with the territory but it's very small amounts too which as you're saying is very different from supplementing with it and very different from large amounts but to circle back you know we're i want to come back to specifically gut health and how to dietarily, how to support uh, gut health, decrease intestinal permeability, lead to some, you know, some rebalancing of the microbiome. We talked through some of those main things and why sorting out the the better forms of carbohydrates is really important and the better forms of fats. Some other things that are pretty helpful as far as protein specifically goes would be the anti-inflammatory amino acids, which, uh, which, are found in more of the connective tissue of the meat. So instead of just focusing on, you know, chicken breast and steak, the cuts that have much larger amounts of connective tissue and bone are going to have much higher amounts of these anti-inflammatory amino acids, glycine, proline, hydroxyproline. There, There are others as well. And these are also found in collagen and gelatin proteins, which you can get as supplements if you're not getting them as much from foods. And these, all of those amino acids, and also just using collagen and gelatin as a whole have been shown to be very helpful as far as gut health goes and intestinal permeability goes so getting enough of those i think is is incredibly important uh some particular nutrients that are also helpful from that gut standpoint one is zinc you could get a supplement of zinc carnosine which is generally directly shown yeah yeah directly with with the gut and intestinal permeability but you can also get zinc from as you mentioned earlier shellfish like uh, or bivalves in this case like oysters which have a lot of zinc in them so I would always suggest going for food first whether that's collagen or or zinc or any of these other vitamins that we'll discuss or minerals but uh, if for whatever reason you can't from your diet using some supplements in particular instances can can work so uh, zinc and collagen would be a couple of important ones B vitamins are are another one that again we should be getting ideally from our diet but supplementing with them additionally can help considerably with gut function. We talked about saturated fats again from the diet. Uh, vitamin C is another one that we should be getting a lot of if we're eating a lot of high-quality carbohydrates from fruit, which we'll also discuss why that's important, not only from the gut perspective, but from the energy, anti-stress, pro-immune, you know, immune supportive uh, side of things. And again, all of those can can be pretty supportive uh, gut-wise.
1: I just want to add that while gelatin it can be helpful for some people, especially with gut issues, it can also cause problems for them. So that's something mm-hmm. to keep in mind. Uh, I've seen a lot of people see that Ray Pete recommends a lot of gelatin and collagen, and then they have poor reactions to it and they continue to try and do it. If you're having a poor reaction to it, you're probably not, you're not digesting it well, or you have something going on where you're not agreeing with it.
0: Or it's a bad source.
1: Or it's a bad source. Yeah. And it, they're trying different sources is appropriate, but also, you know, recognizing that, look, I'm not tolerating this well and just being, okay, I I understand the theory, but sometimes the theory isn't playing out in reality, but essentially if you're having problems with gelatin, like gelatin can be a source of problems for people. Another alternative would be collagen hydrolysate. Mm -hmm. Um, But that can also still cause issues for some people. So it's important to be aware of yourself and see what's going on. Um, As far as B vitamins go, A lot of people, when they talk about all the importance of uh, healing the intestinal lining, they talk about glutamine, they talk about vitamin C, and they could talk about zinc and and all these different components. But B B vitamins are extremely important for cell division and cell cell growth. And the intestinal lining is a very rapidly dividing structure um, Mm -hmm. that basically sloughs off or is constantly sloughing off cells all the time. Uh, so it's important to not have B vitamin deficiencies uh, and very important ones, which, and you can look up the side effects of different deficiency states like pellag- pellagra, which is vitamin B3, beriberi, um, which is B1, B one. but either way, regardless of the specific path, uh, pathophysiologic name for the disease, um, having adequate B vitamins is really important for intestinal function, for intestinal lining, for metabolic function in general. So, that's something to keep an eye on. Uh, The best sources, I think, are to get through food and trying to make sure that you can get, you know, if you can eat a decent amount of meat. And this is particularly why I think we think meat is important and seafood because they're high in these vitamins. Mm -hmm. White meat chicken and white meat turkey, particularly the breast, which is what I would usually recommend people to eat. because. The thighs are, especially for most conventional sources, pasture chicken is pretty expensive, so it's pasture turkey. Compared to conventional, it's it's a lot more expensive, and it's also harder to find. Yeah. It, the thighs and the the other fattier meats or cuts of these animals uh, has a high amount of pufa, so we recommend the breast, but the breast for these doesn't have as much vitamins and minerals. It's got some. It's not this, to the same degree as seafood or meat. And that's why the preferences for seafood and meat. Um, so I think then, and obviously, uh, like organ meats are very high in B vitamins. I think for some people, the supplements can actually cause issues. So that's just another area to keep in mind. And there are supplements available on the market uh, that you can put on topically, and which I think is very helpful this is not a plug for anybody, but Georgie or hate it from the repeat forum does produce a topical B vitamin supplement that I think is helpful. And I think health matcher has a topical one that can be applied topically as well. Um, and I've used both of them and I appreciate the product. There's no, we don't have any affiliates or anything like that, but it's just, uh, it can be helpful. And then, uh,
0: I'll put the links in the show notes.
1: Yeah. And that's if you're not tolerating them orally because taking them orally can help as well. um, and then the last piece I wanted to talk about uh, was the importance of trying to get most of everything from food, uh, at least at the, uh, there's one more thing after, but getting everything from food, I think is really important. A lot of times I think supplements can cause problems, especially when you're high dosing one thing. And I've, I've done this to myself, like taking really high doses uh, or not really high doses, but having my dietary source of zinc and then taking zinc by itself. I didn't really feel right and I had to stop doing it. I was doing it for a little while. So I've tend to found that taking individual things can give me weird effects, especially if you're taking them in super physiologic or a, a high doses, doses that you normally wouldn't see in food or in your diet. So, and I, whereas if I've eaten oysters versus eating versus taking a capsule of zinc, I don't feel bad when I eat the oyster. So I think food is important. The other thing I want to point out too, is that, with a lot of the starch options with a lot of the grains, um, and things like white rice. Uh, another reason I think it's important to avoid them is they're relatively nutrient poor. Uh, and a lot of them that do have nutrients, it's added fortified vitamins and minerals and, and iron shavings and things like that, which I think are actually probably best to avoid overall. Um, and the and this is i think more of a check mark in the box for fruit where fruit comes with especially fruit juice or concentrated forms of fruit come with a, like a decent amount of vitamins and minerals besides the protective plant compounds and they also have sugar or sucrose which many people digest pretty well um some people can't really digest starch so well and then sucrose obviously becomes the main source so
0: and glucose and fructose
1: and glucose and fructose in free form yeah yeah um But I tend to think that the the free-form sugars are easier to digest overall.
0: Compared to starch.
1: Compared to starch, yeah. Because starch is essentially chains of glucose, where the glucose, where the sucrose is just glucose and one glucose and one fructose bound together. And Mm -hmm. then obviously the free-forms, so they don't really require as much digestion. Um, So I think that can be helpful, especially with gut issues. Uh, And that's, I know you're going to get into the importance of the fruit and vegetable, or I guess the fruits over grains, but I think that's a strong check mark for fruits and fruit juice, uh, specifically hundred percent fruit juice, not from concentrate. You have, uh, you have a lot of vitamins and minerals coming with the sugar. Whereas if you were having white rice, there's some, but you know, not quite as much as fruit It's a little bit more limited and you have a starch. So I think the fruit overall on paper, and at least in my experience is superior. And even from my personal experience, I feel a lot more even keeled and, uh, my blood sugar is regulated easier. I have less ups and downs when I have the fruit, uh, less sluggish in my digestion. When I use fruit or fruit juice, than if I was to eat a lot of, uh, eat a lot of grains part, uh, starch, heavy grains. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> There's, I mean, in a lot of anyone who's coming from the functional medicine, paleo side, or if they're coming from. Just the general low sugar side you know we're cautioned against the the sugar that's in fruit i'll met you know in, in a minute i'll get to why i think it's so important but we've also talked about why this does not cause the disaster for blood sugar that it's said to uh in a previous episode of the podcast in more depth so I'll, I'll link to that we'll talk about it a little bit now i did want to mention as far as collagen and gelatin go just going back to that you mentioned some people have issues with them as supplements which i've seen that too if you're trying different sources, then that's an issue. If you try getting it from food, which I think is the best place to get it, whether you're doing some sort of a bone broth, you're doing some sort of meat that has a bone in it, or is just high in connective tissue, like the roasts and the um, shanks yeah. and things that take much longer to cook because you have to break down the connective tissue. If you're, get, I think that's always the best source, so I would try that too. Uh, you can also use if you are doing, you know, or supplementary like
1: or like a fish, like a like if you mm-hmm. use, cook the whole fish. Yeah, yeah. Even if you don't drink the broth, if you just eat the meat, you still get a decent amount. Especially like leg of lamb or something, or like if you have the whole fish with the head in there, if you eat the meat from there, you're still getting a decent amount of those amino acids.
0: Yeah. It, it sounded like you were talking about fish, and then you said leg of lamb, and it sounded like you <laughs> talked about that <laughs> type of fish. No,
1: it's just <laughs> those are both options that like we do. They'll we'll have my dad will go fishing. He'll bring back a fish. They'll cook the whole fish all together. Yeah. um Obviously, take out a lot of the guts. Or like we'll buy a leg of lamb it'll have the bone and everything in there. And then we'll, Mm -hmm. we'll either put it slow cook it or we'll put it in the oven and you're still getting a decent amount of, of those collagenous proteins. And you can see that as even with the fish, if you just have the fish and some of the juices that you cooked it in, even if it was pan, pan fried, if you leave it in the fridge, it'll, it'll congeal, it'll become a gelatinous substance. And it's basically, there may be some fat component there, but a lot of that is actually the proteins coming out.
0: Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, drinking that, the broth that's coming with any of those foods would be yeah. ideal. But even if you're not, you're still getting some amount, Yeah, as you were saying. Uh, also, if you know those things aren't an option, the collagen or gelatin supplements are not working, you can use glycine on its own as a supplement. Again, that's this would good, be, yeah. uh, you know, which can help with stomach acid production and, and various other aspects of gut health, like intestinal permeability and just having a general Bio-acid anti-inflammatory production. effect. Yeah, and bioproduction. production. Um, taurine is also good for both of those things too. So you know, those are some options too from the supplement side that uh, can be used in, in the right context. All right, that's going to wrap up part two of this autoimmunity series. As we discussed in today's episode, gut health is a huge factor when it comes to autoimmune conditions. But if we address the gut and don't address the other factors that affect our metabolism, then we'll still be left with the same high stress hormones chronic inflammation and low thyroid situation which is the same conditions that lead to the autoimmune state in the first place so in part three of this series we'll be discussing how you can fix a metabolic function in autoimmune conditions using nutrition as well as certain supplements that can help with autoimmune conditions if you enjoyed today's episode then please leave a like or comment if you're watching on youtube or a review or five star rating on itunes all of those things really do a ton to help support the show. To check out the show notes for today's episode, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com podcast, where you can take a look at the studies and articles and anything else that we referenced throughout today's episode. And if you are dealing with any autoimmune conditions, if you're dealing with any other low-energy symptoms like chronic cravings and hunger, fatigue, chronic pain, weight gain, brain fog, hormonal imbalances, gut inflammation, or other gut issues as we discussed throughout today's episode, or if you're dealing with poor sleep uh, or any other low energy symptoms or chronic health conditions, then head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course where I will walk you through the main things that you want to focus on as far as diet and lifestyle are concerned, so that you can maximize your cellular energy. And I'll also walk you through why maximizing your cellular energy is the key to resolving these symptoms and chronic health conditions. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And with that, I will see you in the next episode.